We're in James chapter 1, verse 12 through 18. How to deal with temptations. If you would, stand for reading of the word of God. We honor God by standing when we read his word. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This is the word of God. Be seated, please. Now the theme, the theme of James is this. Genuine faith produces genuine works. Okay, now it's your turn. Genuine faith produces genuine works for the rest of our life. We're going to remember this. Okay. Last week we learned that trials come to all people. Trials and difficulties come to everyone, Christian, non-Christian, rich or poor, weak or strong. Trials are inevitable. It's part of the cursed state that we're living in here. And remember, they come in various shapes and sizes like polka dots in your life. Trials are beneficial. Why? Because of what they produce. They produce patience. We would become perfect, complete, lacking nothing in verse 2 last week. Trials are opportunities for us to access the wisdom of God. And that's what we want to do in the trial. We want God's wisdom when going through the trial. We want the ability to see and evaluate from God's point of view, not our point of view, from God's point of view. When a trial comes to your house, when it knocks on your door, when it comes to your life, after the initial shock of the trial, we stop and we pray. Okay, stop and pray and ask the giving God for wisdom on how to navigate through the trial. So when the trial comes, we don't run around like chickens with our heads cut off and go, oh my, the world, the sky is falling, life is gloom and despair. We stop right where we are and we ask the giving God for wisdom. And we ask in faith without doubting. That is in verse 6. We trust God no matter what. No doubting. No being double-souled in verse 8, torn between two opinions. I'm trusting God, I'm not trusting God, I'm trusting God, I'm not trusting God. Vacillating back and forth. We don't want to do that. Not trusting God in the trials of life leads to an unstable, unsettled entire life. Remember it says you're unstable or unsettled in all of your ways, all of your life. So if you can't navigate through the trials of life, you're going to be unstable in every area of your life. So it speaks to us about getting God's wisdom and making it through. And know that in any trial, the giving God, the God who will give you wisdom if you ask, is for you. He gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. We know that pesky trials are here to stay. Again, it's part of the fallen condition of man. It's part of living in a sinful world. Such is the nature of life in a fallen world. Life will never be quite right here. Why? Because we're just visiting. This world is not our home. We are aliens and strangers here. You notice that you don't fit in more and more? It's because we shouldn't fit in. If you are fitting in, you question yourself. <laughs> but one day, one day, this will all be over. And what will it be? We will all be home. And then everything will be right. This week, something that is part of our daily lives, temptations, or, or in this case, a solicitation for evil. That is what we're going to be talking about today. 
how to deal with temptations to do evil. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Holy Spirit, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our beings to receive what you have from us today. What we do not know, teach us. And what you teach us, help us to apply. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Chuck Swindoll, in his introduction to this section, says this, Countless people have wrecked their lives on the jagged reefs of sin, drawn in by temptation's seductive song. Temptation involves all types of sin and all types of people. Parents, grandparents, students, professionals alike are constantly being wooed to destruction by sin's enticements. Many friendships lay battered and broken apart on the rocks of where gossip sings and floating face down beneath the coral urgings of power and popularity are the washed-out lives of leaders, pastors, teens, parents, executives, all kinds of people who veered off course from following God towards the tempting promise of fulfillment some other way. Perhaps you have fallen in the struggle with escaping sin's grasp. How will you learn to stay on course? This is the question. How do we learn to stay on course? Diedrich Bonhoeffer says this. He gives us some insight in this. In our members, there is a slumbering inclination towards desire, which is both sudden and fierce. He really nails this. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it's sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame or power or greed for money. Joy in God, in the course of being extinguished in each of us, happens when we seek all of our joy in the creature and forget the Creator. Interesting statement by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Good insight. Now, how to deal with temptations? This is the question. And remember the word temptation. We went through this last time. The Greek word is periosimos. The same word is for testing or temptation. And it means two different things. If God is testing, it is for your good. It is to bring you closer to God. It is to bring you back on track. But if the enemy tests you or tries you, it's always to push you away, to drive you away from God. It is always meant for evil. God's testing is always meant for good. Satan's temptation is always meant for evil, to drag you away. Now, with that stated, there's a right way to deal with temptation. We see that in verse 12. Notice the word blessed. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. Now, there's a qualifier there, endures temptation. If you're not enduring it, you're not going to be blessed. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. That word blessed is markarios, and it means fully satisfied. When you endure temptation, you will have a blessing from God that you are fully satisfied. Life has purpose. Life has meaning. Life has value. And you have discovered that because you have made it through all the trials that have come your way, or at least some of the trials that come your way. Who is blessed? Again, it's the one who endures a temptation. And that word endures means sustains the load. Every time you're getting tempted, there's some sort of load on you. There's a load on you. You're sustaining the load. The man, the woman who meets the trials in the right way is blessed. Now, what is the right way? Well, we learned that last week in verses 5 through 8. You ask the giving God for wisdom. That's the right way. You ask without doubting. I believe God no matter what. I'm trusting him no matter what. 
that's the right way. And that being double-minded, not being two-souled, torn between two worlds of trusting God and not trusting God, that's the right way. The promise in the midst of, of even the most arduous trial is that you can be blessed, fully satisfied. Notice it doesn't say, happy, 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 happy. That's what most humans want. I just want to be happy. Happy, happy, happy. Well, you're living in the wrong planet. If that's what you want, it isn't going to happen here. But you can be blessed because you have demonstrated that you've trusted God, and that trust in God is greater than any trial that comes your way. I will trust in the Lord no matter what. That's the outcome. That is the person that is blessed. That is the person that is fully satisfied with life. I trust God no matter what. Now, remember who James is speaking to. He is speaking to Jewish believers that are being persecuted, and they're, they're in the diaspora, this distribution. They've been spread out all over the known world, and they're being chased for one reason, is that they believe in the Lord Jesus. They've put their trust in Jesus. Remember that word is, put your trust in, commit to, follow. That's what that belief is. It's not just a mental assent. Believe him completely. And they're being hunted down, killed, imprisoned, and enslaved for the simple thing is, I believe in Jesus. And I'm telling you, it's happening today throughout the world. It is happening all over the place. It's a capital crime in much of the world to believe in Jesus. For those then and now, for those who endure the trial, for those who sustain the load of the trial, for those who are approved, remember the word dokimos, approved, genuine. It's to be tried as metals are tried by fire and thus purified. Remember the gold is, is heated up and heated up and the dross comes to the top and it's scraped off and it's scraped off until the gold is pure. That's what the trials do. Dokimos, we are genuine, pure. For those who have come through the fire of trial, notice this, the crown of life, the crown of life, which is a martyr's crown, is going to be given to you. Now, this is significant. It doesn't seem like a big deal now. Oh, I get a crown and that sort of thing. But I'm telling you, at the Bema Seat judgment, when you're judged for your works after salvation, this will be a big deal. Surviving the trial approved is as significant as dying for Christ in the eyes of God. Isn't that amazing? A martyr's crown. Surviving the trials are as significant as someone dying for their faith. Now you can see that navigating through life's pesky trials, God's way, maturing, growing, is very important to God. Remember, a trial is anything, anything that breaks your peace, your comfort, your joy in your life. They can come in a myriad of ways. I just had a trial. And maybe you've had a trial within the last day or so. And my trial was, am I going to come to church today, and am I going to be able to make this? And everybody prayed for me, and I'm able to do that. Now, I actually took this verse, and I went back and says, okay, Lord, I'm going, to, I'm going to ask the giving God, and I'm going to ask without doubting. And I'm telling you, about 7 o'clock last night, this whole thing flipped. And then I called Dale, and I said, man, thank you. I, I think I'm going to make it. And I did. I, that's a trial. They come in different. That, that's a little one, okay? I mean, people have big trials, little trials. But whatever your trial is, it might be little to somebody else. What is it to you? Big deal. It's a big deal. So, navigating through life, pesky trials, you demonstrate to yourself and to the world 
that you are approved, that you are genuine, a real deal Christian. Verse 12 tells us this. It's very important to God, to the Lord, that we make it through the trial. So much so that you get the crown of life for making it through trials. That's astounding. William Barclay says this. James says that if the Christian meets the testing of life in the steadfast constancy which Christ can give, life becomes infinitely more splendid than it ever was before. The struggle is the way to glory, and the very struggle itself is the glory. It's glory for what it produces, a changed, mature me. I will trust you, Lord, no matter what. That's what trials produce, a different me, a perfected me, being more conformed to the likeness of Christ. I'm going to trust you in this no matter what. Now, there's a right way to deal with trials. We want to endure them. We want to carry the load through them. And there's a wrong way to deal with trials or temptations. And verse 13 is going to show us the wrong way. The wrong thing to do is to blame God. Now, I don't know how many of you have done that, how many of people have done, we have done that, but it is very common, it is very common to go into why, God, did you do this or allow this? Let's talk about that for just a second. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So, this is a temptation in a bad sense. This is temptation for evil. So this is not from God for your growth, but this is for evil to get you off course. So that's the first thing to remember. God does not tempt anyone for evil. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone for evil. You must remember that. Anytime there's an enticement for evil, it is not from God. This section is reflecting back on to verse 8 to the double-minded man, the double-minded man who's unstable in all of his ways. He's unsettled in all of his ways from his wrong thinking. Let no one say when he is tempted that he is tempted by God. There are those in the trial who blame God for the evil that is happening to them. You realize that. This does happen. Sin breaks in, and, and sin brings this, stinking thinking. Sin brings stinking thinking, and stinking thinkers rationalize their sin. You realize that. They rationalize their sin. Humans are great rationalizers attempting to justify their actions, justifying their sins. Manipulation is a tremendous fleshly trait. Manipulation, ra rationalizing. It might go something like this. Okay? Tell me if this is, this might be a way somebody thinks. God is one who brings adversity into our lives, into the lives of his people. Now, that is true, if it is for our good. If it's for evil and to take us away from God, then it is not true. But in Isaiah chapter 45, there's an interesting dialogue that goes here that Isaiah speaks about. This is talking about King Cyrus. Now, King Cyrus is going to be a Persian king who will come on the scene, and God will give him authority. He's going to conquer Babylon, and he's going to then allow the Jewish people to go back and rebuild Jerusalem and that whole thing. Okay? But it goes like this, and this happened 150 years before Cyrus was born. 150 years. Some people postulate or, 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 or think that this is what Daniel told Cyrus, that his name was in the Bible 150 years before Cyrus was born, and this was one of the impetuses that God used for Cyrus to let the people go back. He says this, Thus says the Lord, 
to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors, or create a way for him to be victorious in everything that he does. And he goes on to talk about how he, how he deals with Cyrus. And he gets into verse 6, and he says this, the reason that he's doing this, that they may know. Now, who's the they may know? Well, I think it's the nation of Israel to some extent, but it's the whole world may know who God is. That they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form the light and I create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. Interesting word, isn't it? And I, the Lord, do all these things. That word calamity in the Hebrew is the word ra, R-A. And it means wickedness, adversity, bad. I, the Lord, do all these things. You know what he's talking to? He's talking to a Jewish people. Isaiah was a pre-exilic prophet. He's talking to his people that he's pleading with them to turn back to him. Don't follow the false gods. Don't go the way of all the other nations. I've called you out as a special people. Don't turn, don't turn, don't turn. Prophet after prophet after prophet, he sends. And then God says, okay, the only way you're going to learn is through adversity. And it was Babylonian captivity. And finally, the Persians took over. And then God speaks to Cyrus about letting his people go back. God will bring adversity to bring you back on track. So that would be some, that would be a, a, a true statement. That would be a true statement. So God is the one who brings adversity in the lives of his people for correction. God is sovereign. He is in control of everything. That's a true statement. Ultimately, God is in control. God has brought adversity into my life. Could be true, could not be true. Depends if it was for good or for evil. In such times of adversity, thinking is going now, I am tempted to act in an ungodly manner. Starting to get off base. Starting to get off base. That would be off base. Adversity is meant to drive you back to God, to do some introspection. Where am I at in this process, God? It's not to push you away. It is to drive you to God. So now the guy's thinking is getting off. And then he gets really distorted. If I yield to this temptation, I sin, which is true. Therefore, oh, God is the source of my temptation. He made me do this evil. He did it. And if I fail, it must be God's fault because he led me into the temptation. It's not my fault. It's God's fault. That's called rationalizing. That's called justifying. That's called stinking thinking. That is exactly what that is. God, this is your fault. Man has been justifying sin from the beginning. And I'll tell you, we had some ancestors who did this right out of the chute. In Genesis chapter 3, you have Adam and Eve. These are the only perfect humans ever born. Perfect. Perfect physically, emotionally, spiritually. They have one prohibition. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day that you eat of it, you will die. And so the tempter comes in, tempts Eve, and what do they do? They cave. She takes, and then he takes, who's right with them. And the first thing they do, it says this in verse 7, the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. You know what they're experiencing for the first time in humanity is shame, cover-up. Sin always brings cover-up. Sin, sin brings shame. And then God deals with him. He's, he's walking in the garden. He's, he's looking for Adam. And Adam says, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid. It's the first fear. Sin brought shame. Sin brought fear. Because I was naked, I hid myself. 
And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Now, God knows everything. He's watching these guys. Then the man said, now watch this. If you talk about not owning it. You talk about rationalizing and blame. We come from good seed here. This is, this is us, okay? Watch what he says. You know what he says, I and mean, most of you do. The man said, the woman whom you gave me. So who's he blaming? Immediately he's blaming the woman, but he's also blaming the woman you gave me. If you didn't give me this woman, I would have been okay. Now, he loved her from the beginning. I mean, he, when he saw Eve for the first time, I mean, his, his, his mouth dropped, and his, he just went, wow. But now, it's, now she's caused me trouble. Now, watch what Eve does. She takes her cue from her head. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Can you imagine how quickly we get our fingers pointing to other people and blaming other people, rationalizing our sin, and not owning it. That's what we're trying to get across here. Sin brings insane thinking. Satan thinks, now you talk about insane thinking. Satan thinks he's going to win. That's insane thinking. That is insane thinking. Jesus breaks into a sin-laden world and brings sanity and allows us to see clearly what our sin is and how it affects us. You know that you are thinking sanely when you, in, in this process where you cave that you immediately confess and repent. Confessing is I'm agreeing with God. You might as well agree with him because he knows the truth and he saw you. Now, you might have thought, oh, I got away with this. It's dark. It's a closet. I'm hidden. No, no. Everything is uncovered and laid bared before the eyes of whom we must give an account. So confess your sins and repent of your sins. That's the big thing. Turn away. Turn away and turn to God. Now, why can't we blame God for evil? Well, we sent this, said this before. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. That word tempted is mean he is untemptable. He is not temptable in any way. God is incapable of being tempted by evil, and nor does he tempt anyone with evil. Now, the lesson is this. Do not rationalize your actions. Own them. Own them. Manipulation, rationalization, blaming are flesh qualities, not spirit qualities. Secondly, do not blame God for your sin or anyone else. Again, own your stuff. And do this. Do confess. Do confess. Do repent. And then move on. Don't get stuck in your past. See, Satan is always going to come back, or the enemy is going to come back, or some, something's going to come back and speak to you about how crummy you are and how, how much of a failure you are, and it's going to be condemnation, condemnation, and condemnation. Well, what does the Scripture tell me? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. That's the truth. Whenever you're feeling condemnation, that condemnation is meant to drive you away from God. I can never make it. I can never be good enough. Well, you can't be good enough. Jesus was good enough. His righteousness has been credited to you. That's all we have to know. There's no, you forget it and you drive on. Do not fall into the guilt trap. Now, the wrong way to deal with temptations is to blame God or others. We must own it. Verse 14 and 15 tells us the temptation process. The temptation process and you. Now, 
this would be a part where you want to really listen. If you're drifting, this would be a drift back in part because you need, we need to know this. So verse 14 and 15, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires, not somebody else, and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-blown, brings forth death. So the enticement to do evil follows a consistent pattern, a consistent pattern. Satan has used it right from the beginning, and we have fallen for it hook, line, and sinker right from the beginning. The triunity of evil that you must deal with is this. Remember, the world system is under Satan's control. Your flesh is your fallen nature. And, of course, the devil is there to exacerbate those other two, to make worse those other two, to utilize those other two in your demise. So, ultimately, however, the responsibility to resist lies with you as an individual, me as an individual. The Holy Spirit filled you, now that you're born again of the Spirit, can say no to the flesh and yes to the Spirit. Now notice verse 14. Again, it's on you. It's your own desires, drawn away by your own desires. And again, you can't blame someone else. You can't even blame the devil. You have to take this ownership on yourself. Genesis chapter 4, verse 6 through 7, talks about Cain and Abel. Now, Adam and Eve had these two kids. They had a whole bunch of kids, but this is what's mentioned here. And, it, and they were told to bring a sacrifice. And I will bet you that God told them exactly what sacrifice to bring. Because Abel's was a sacrifice of blood, and it was accepted. And, and Cain's was a sacrifice of the ground, which was not accepted. Cain was a farmer, and he thought, I'd just bring my stuff. This is good enough, God. I'm bringing what I want to bring. And it's the wrong attitude with God. Then the Lord said to Cain, now Cain is all ticked off because he's been rejected. You rejected mine and you took Abel's, and now he's hating his brother because, because of this. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Why is your lip underground? Why is your frown down? That is what that downcast is. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Notice what God is saying here. If you do what is right, this is a second chance. This is a second chance for you, Cain. If you do what is right, you'll be accepted. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It is desire for you, and you must rule over it. Now, who is God putting the responsibility on? Cain. You must rule over it. It's the individual. So, four steps in the temptation process that we must recognize. Four steps. Number one, notice the bait is dropped. There's always bait. Enticement. Bait is this. It's an enticement to catch with bait. It's made just for you. You're drawn away and you're enticed, and it's a picture of a trap, and you stick your little head in the trap, and what happens? Bonk. Got you. Okay? You want to recognize this right off. Now, being tempted at this point is not sin. It is not sin. This happens all the time. This is part of living here. But the inner desire is attracted to the bait. Each one of us is made in a specific way that we're attracted to different things. I mean, a different bait will be used to catch a different critter. And that's how Satan knows. He's watched us. He's watched our proclivities. He knows the way that we function in life. 
and he knows just the exact cheese to put in your trap. Limburger cheese, womp. American cheese, womp. He knows what you like. And by his own desire, it is a, he is attracted, and the flesh screams out, I need this. The flesh also says, I deserve this. You ever get to that point? Uh, oh, I deserve this. You won't be hurt by this, and that no one will ever know. When Satan says that to you, just get ready for the megaphone to start blasting. Because once you do it, he's got the thing is blasting out so everybody finds out. However, it's still not sin at this point. It's still not sin. Step number three, it is sin when we yield. When desire has conceived and it gives birth to sin. Diedrich Bonhoeffer says this, at this moment, God is quite unreal to us. Remember, we forget God. We put God on a shelf. Whenever you're dealing with your sin, you take God from right here and you say, okay, God, you're going over here for a little bit. I'm going to do my thing. And I'll feel guilty and I'll get you back in a few minutes. But right now you're over here. That's usually what happens here. So God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and the will of man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision-making are taken from us. You have just been caught in the trap. Bonk. And what does it result in? Well, John Owen says this. Interesting. This guy was born in 1616. He died in 1683. He says this. Temptations and occasions put nothing into a man but only draw out what was in him. Do you know in Mark chapter 7, tells us what is actually in us? For from within, out of the heart of men, this isn't Satan. This is us in our depraved state, in our depraved fallen nature. For within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders. What a list. Thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, and evil eye. Blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile a man. It isn't somebody else, folks. It's us. It comes from within and defiles us. And then finally, sin results in death. Sin, when it is full-blown, full-grown, brings forth death. And it's not physical death or spiritual death at this moment that he's talking about, but that separation from God feeling that you get. That awful feeling of darkness, that death-like existence that you get when you know you've sinned and you've dishonored God. You feel that separation, that distance from him. Max Lucado says this, guilt creeps in on cat's paws. Doesn't that happen? Guilt creeps in on cat's paws, steals whatever joy might have flickered in our eyes. Confidence is replaced by doubt and honesty is elbowed out by rationalization. Exit peace, enter turmoil. Just as the pleasure of indulgence ceases, the hunger for relief begins. Our vision is short-sighted, and our myopic life now has but one purpose, and that is to find release for our guilt. And what do people do? They get into their addictions. They get into addictions, whatever it is. It could be food, it could be cocaine, it could be pot, it could be alcohol, it could be whatever your thing is that you do to medicate yourself. 
It can be even something good. It can be exercise. It can be overwork. It can be any indulgence that takes it, takes it to an extreme. Or as Paul questioned for all of us, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And then Paul goes on to say, thank God for the Lord Jesus. He is the one that rescues me. He is the one that rescues me. Now, how do we deal with temptations? Know the process. Please, know the process. It has been used from the beginning of time until now. Stop the process from progressing. You see it, you see the bait drop, you have the inner desire, you still have a chance. But man, once you've taken it, once you yield, you're done. You're dead meat. Stop the process. Exert your authority as a believer with a great big Holy Spirit. No, I'm not doing this. I am not doing this. Exit from the situation. No exit. No exit. You must say no to your flesh and yes to your spirit. Remember Galatians 5.16. Walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. This is the temptation process. It is consistent. It is effective. And we must recognize it. Now, how do we deal with temptations? How do we deal with enticements for evil? Remember, they're never from God. Verse 16 through 18, realize everything good comes from God. Everything good comes from God. Let's read the verses. Do not be deceived. This is still in context here. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Only good comes from God. He never tempts someone to sin. God is always good. He is unchangeable. Theologians call this immutable, the unchanging God. God is light, perfect light, so perfect that there is not even a variation of shadow of turning with God. God does that whimsically change like we do as humans. Feel one way for a minute and another way another minute. No, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we can trust him. We can trust him. Romans 2.4 says this, It is the goodness of God that brings you to repentance. It is the goodness of God. God's goodness is expressed in his desire for all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2.4, that is goodness. God's desire is that everyone be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And then God gives his word. That word is logos, the entirety of, of, of knowledge and wisdom. In the beginning was the word, John 1.1, 1, 1, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That is the logos. It's talking about Jesus, the complete compendium of knowledge and wisdom. God uses the word to bring people to himself. In Romans 10.14-15, we see this. How shall they call on him who they have not believed. And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Now, I want to tell you, it isn't just a preacher like me. All of us are preachers. All a preacher is is a heralder of truth. That's what Caruso is, a heralder of truth. We're giving someone the gospel message. And how shall they preach, declare the truth, unless they are sent? Unless they are sent. Hebrews 4.12 for the word of God, and that is again the logos of God, is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. 
It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. All things are uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him whom we must give an account. That's sobering. That is sobering. God uses his word to save us. That's for sure. And God uses his word to deliver us from our daily struggles. You know that. From our daily struggles. Psalm 119.9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. Verse 119.11. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. That is how you stay away from sin. That is how you walk this thing out. How do you hide God's word in your heart? Psalm 119.15 says this, I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself on your statutes. I will not forget your word. I put it inside me. I put it inside me. Now, it's just some concluding thoughts. Remember, everything good comes from God. Think about this as we, as we close. How many of us pray for deliverance from a temptation only to turn right around and expose ourselves again? I'm telling you. I mean, I could like, like raise my hand for that because that's the truth. It has been said to pray against temptations and yet rush into an occasions is to thrust our fingers into the fire and then pray that we might not be burnt. How do we change this pattern? Well, Christians cannot achieve victory over temptation with knowledge alone. It's when we sow God's word into our daily living, living that temptation will begin to lose its foothold in your life. It won't let go easy. The tempter knows exactly what entices you. And he will not let go easy. But you implant this word into your heart and you will change. This has to be a daily thing. A daily thing. Chuck Swindoll closes with this interesting statement. I thought it was good. Mark Anthony's most widely known and costly temptation floated to him on a barge. Bedecked as dazzling bait, Cleopatra sailed up the Sidness River straight into Mark Anthony's unguarded heart. Their adulterous relationship with its passing pleasures cost him his wife, his place as a world leader, and ultimately his life. Sow a thought, reap a destiny. Mark Anthony would not resist temptation, and the question is, will you? Good question. Know this. Know the temptation process. Stop before it progresses too far. With a Holy Spirit's power, say no and move on. Don't be static. Move away. And do not stay near the fire because you will get burned. Folks, this is how we deal with temptations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd use this word that has been given today, that you implant it into our hearts. You speak to each person differently. Each one of us is dealing with something different. You have told us what to do, to confess, to repent, to turn to you, and then put your word inside of us and move away from the temptation. Lord, you've given us the tools. Now that you've given us the tools, may we walk in what you've given us. 
We are now responsible. You have taught us. May we believe what you've taught us and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.